Hey, everybody. Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. I am John Gersma, and I am, as always, with my co-host and Chief Strategy Officer, Libby Rodney. Libby, what's going on? Hey, John. How you doing? Happy almost end of the summer, almost back to school. <laughs> the whole thing. We're doing back yeah. to school in, in big style this morning. We're actually up in Syracuse getting our daughter, who's a sophomore, back into the, her dorm. That's so exciting. Congratulations, yeah. Nina. Hey, listen, for anybody who is new to this uh, program, Libby and I are, are pollsters, and our job is to really take a look at what's going on in society every week, the latest trends and shifts. And uh, what we're going to do is talk about four stories this morning in terms of what they might mean for business and marketing. And Libby, I think we've got some great stuff. The first story we're going to talk about is the supply shortage now includes teachers, which is not good timing for back to school. And then uh, our second story, you've got a, a story on, on the employees in the labor market. Yeah, the tables have turned for U.S. employees, and now the employers are said to have uh, the power back in their reins. And what are the implications of that is some things that we're going to discuss. Oh, terrific. And then you've got a story about billionaires. What's the angle here? Yeah, there's a definitely a love-hate relationship with billionaires happening, but more and more Americans aren't impressed with the actions of billionaires. All right, and then we'll finish up and talk about the growing uh, ever-present danger of location apps and who's using them and why. So uh, mm -hmm. as always, Libby, we get in and talk first about the weekly numbers. This week, as we uh, reach toward the end of August, we have now, as you know, been through, <clears throat> excuse me, three years of, one might call them prosaic PCR tests. So Americans are fatigued with COVID. And what's interesting this week, Libby, is that they're more concerned about their financial health than they are their physical health. So inside the data, eight in 10 Americans this week worry over a potential U.S. recession whereas 64% are concerned over affording their living expenses. That actually is in contrast to their health concerns. 58% uh, now are concerned about BA5, and 56% are concerned about monkeypox. And Libby, what I thought was interesting in the data this week um, is Jack went back, Jack Cooney, our executive producer, she went back and tracked the last three weeks of the competing anxieties over COVID and the monkeypox. And she found three weeks ago, there was a seven point gap between the two, and now they're only two points apart. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think the news has really highlighted monkeypox. Um, you can start to see the anxiety increase. I've seen in New York, people take out lice, um, Lysol cans and like spray the coffee, <laughs> oh the gosh. coffee shop area in which they're about to sit. So I think... The anxiety of like how we get monkeypox, where we get it from, the back to school sessions that are ramping up. I think there's just a lot of concern about not wanting to get it um, and to get those kind of painful sores and, and flu-like symptoms that come with monkeypox. You know, I forgot to mention that we're in week 130 of COVID tracking and that, <laughs> that comment you just raised took me back to our concern about surfaces. Remember that in March yeah. 2020? Yeah, it's kind of, it's coming full circle. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, let's talk about our first story. So absolutely, there is a rampant supply chains problems all over the world. And now it's also come into the classroom. Uh, this is a new poll that we conducted this week with Lexia Learning. And I thought it was really interesting. I'd love your, your take on it. But um, the first thing we found is that three quarters of American parents are concerned about the national teacher shortage. 
that obviously happening is back to school is underway across the nation. And it is real. Uh, if you look at the stats, uh, we see this week that Iowa has over 1,400 classroom teacher openings. And there's a potential for this to only get worse because there was a, a National Education Association survey from January that found that over half of all American teachers, 55%, have said they will leave the profession earlier than planned. So that there's a lot going on here to kind of take into account. but. What is behind these numbers, I thought were, it was really sort of concerning, was that more than half of, of American parents feel their kids are still experiencing pandemic-related learning loss. And what they're really looking for, uh, over four in 10, 45%, they want more one-on-one -on -one time with teachers. Um, they think that's gonna help their kids sort of catch up to be at or above grade level uh, in the upcoming school year. And I think that Libby becomes a real big challenge, right? Because trying to get more one-on-one -on -one time in a time of teacher shortages doesn't look like this is going to um, solve a, a solution anytime soon. Yeah, no, it's so um, it's so interesting. I think for many parents going through the pandemic, um, people really realized the role of teachers having to mm -hmm. do the teaching themselves. And there's a strong desire to make sure the teachers are really um, great um, and that we are back in school kind of full-time in sessions. Um, we saw that one only one-third of parents believe that their child's school hired and retrained re um, great teachers since co the pandemic began in March 2020. So it's like, okay, well, the teachers... You know, there's just a lot of turnover, it seems like. And then 64% cited that higher pay was the key to teacher retention, followed by a smaller class size. And only 20% of parents believe that their children's school has compensated teachers fairly. So I think it's just interesting. It's a lot of the stuff that we see with frontline workers. Mm. People have really revalued the, the jobs that we used to kind of just take um, for granted and and are looking towards these teachers as like hey we did have some learning loss we're we're worried about that these are the our future generation of of children and students and citizens and we want to make sure that we you know make up for that loss at the same time teachers need to be paid and and um fairly compensated for the role that they play in in society at large and i think hmm. just like frontline workers that was that's kind of a conversation that is coming to a head. That's an interesting shift as a result of, of COVID. I love that word revalued. And um, I wonder you know, what you think about the maybe broader sort of social challenges we have right now that are coming into the classroom, whether it's you know, guns or political division. I mean, how do you sort of look at that in terms of, of what we're asking teachers to do? And do you think that's sort of playing into the burnout? Yeah, in fact, 25% um, of parents are also concerned about teacher burnout. Hmm. And I mean, if you look at what, <laughs> I just imagine a teacher sitting behind their desk and their job, what they signed up for was to teach students, was to learn and, and foster education. But now, you know, a lot of the guns and violence challenges that are hitting the classrooms, a lot of states have told teachers the solution to that is to arm up that i mean that's kind of a a crazy you know idea that you not only have to teach students but you have to learn and and keep them safe from gun violence um 
all the kind of <laughs> red and blue politics that are happening around mm. curriculum. Like there's just, there's too much to handle on top of just handling students from a special needs point of view, from catching them up from the learning loss in COVID. I mean, I think the big challenge for all of society, but parents especially, is to to enter the classroom with more grace and compassion and to really think about how do we we work together as a community versus, you know, what aren't these people doing right and perfect that my child needs? Like, you know, bringing people together as one. I think it's a really interesting point. And also this week, you know, Florida, Florida's governor uh, DeSantis, he commented something to the fact, I'm paraphrasing it, but I think he said that our, our schools are a place for education, not indoctrination. And it, it, to your point, it's really true. It's really putting, teachers into roles are unfamiliar with, whether it's, you know, firearms or trying to navigate the politics of a, of a red-blue agenda in the classrooms. It's, uh, it's got to be really taxing on, on our country's teachers, and I think you see that in this Alexia data. Um, there was another interesting story I wanted to get into and talk about, which is a, a new survey we conducted this week with, with Bloomberg News. And, you know, we have been talking, Libby, probably for the last year about this strong labor market let's not upset employees let's not have them return to work because you know they could switch they're highly mobile and there was some really surprising data this week uh, that i thought kind of came out of what we what we found and and this is a story about sort of the tables have turned for us employees and libby what they told us is that they're losing the upper hand um, you know, layoffs are starting to mount. There's been concerns, obviously, we talked about over the economy and pay. And what seems to be happening is that the leverage that employees thought that they had seems to be slipping. Um, so kind of inside the numbers, 58% of American professional workers now believe that companies have more power in the job market these days. And as you know, we've been asking this question sort of monthly, and this is a five-point increase from January. And, you know, it cuts across all generations. And maybe we can kind of come back and talk a little bit more about that. But um, this is leaving employees to feel less empowered. So six in 10 workers almost at 59% indicated why they would like a raise, right, to keep up with the cost of living with inflation. They actually don't feel comfortable asking for one. And 51% of employees believe they can negotiate uh, to work partially or fully from home without fear of repercussions. That's only at 51%, and that has also declined. So I'm, I'm just curious, Libby, kind of how do you square unemployment, I mean, record unemployment, uh, you know, statistics right now with this sort of sense of, of worker anxiety over keeping their jobs? Yeah, I mean it's it's so interesting because you know this this power struggle dynamic I think emerges when there's no real sense of loyalty and no real sense in reciprocity and long-term investment in employees by employers. So it's at you know at the end of the day when it's just you're getting compensated and it might just be a moment in time then you get worried that 
you might be let go or something might happen. But when an employee kind of invests in you, and John, we've talked about this in the past where if an employee invests in you, educates you, knows that you're going to be there, upskills you, you know, those are like pensions of the past that don't happen anymore. But there's some sort of longevity and loyalty and building of trust that belongs with that. And now in, in a world where it feels more like, you know, wheels in a cog and I'm fitting in this cog for this moment and then I walk away from it, it's just, it's, it's, it brings it down. Those levels of trust really aren't there. So even if you have that secure job, it becomes like who, who has the power dynamic of that moment. And I think regardless of employees have more power or employers have more power, the fact that it's just on that um, binary is probably not a healthy thing. I completely agree with you. And, you know, other things that sort of support that assertion in the in the Harris Bloomberg data this week, you know, we saw that six in 10 employees agreed that they could readily seek out jobs with higher pay. And 55% actually said they are likely to try to secure other job offers in order to get raises at their current jobs. Um, what I thought was really interesting though, is at the same time, nearly two thirds of employees are now considering that they feel like they should stay put. You know, they said that the current economic fluctuations are why they plan to stay at their current jobs. So there feels like there's like some sort of tension here, right, Libby? It's like, you know, I feel like I need to go out and test the market. I feel like I need to go lock in uh, a better salary to keep up my wages, um, you know, with my costs. And yet at the same time, there's a fear if I step out of my current job, I might be stepping into the abyss. Mm hmm. No, that's absolutely true. And again, um, if there's a little bit of a, a loss of feeling that that my employer has my best interests at mind for the long term. Um, so it, it's kind of like that game of chicken, as you mm -hmm. said, where you're you're just testing the limits. And so what's interesting, I think, is that we see even younger people more willing to seek out jobs with higher pay and try to lock that in right now. Um, and they're much more concerned though also about just keeping their job um, compared to Gen Xers and boomers. And I think what's interesting about that or what what makes sense about that data is that Young people, like if you think about, especially Gen Z, they're Americans under 25. They were the first to be let go during the pandemic. They were the first ones to be cut or their pay reduced to, to kind of make um, the pandemic work and, and wages work. And they've also been hit, and, and young millennials, I would add in there, so under 30, they've also been hit with, you know, um, lack of wage increases that keep up with inflation. So even if they've gotten increases, they haven't necessarily matched the high inflation that we're seeing today. Um, and then the last thing to think about with them that I think is really interesting is when we go and talk to young people today in all our like sessions and our salons, what we often hear is that they said that they grew up with parents who are really burnt out from work and who also experience layoff, layoffs or, you know, um, downturns during the 2008 recession or other kind of economic downturns. And um, that it really impacts the way that they think about in the employer. 
and what their job security really looks like. So I think they're just a little bit more skeptical of that relationship too. And so they're much more like, hey, I'm, I'm here, I'm going to make some money, and then I'm going to try to secure that and then walk away and make some money somewhere else and try to secure that and walk away and make somewhere else. I mean, I think this, it all kind of intersects with what we were talking about last week, which is the quiet quitting movement. Um, a lot of times though, people aren't just quiet quitting. They're also, you know, job searching on the other end of that, trying to, to make that next bridge to another point of financial stability. This is so interesting and so sort of multi-layered because it does connect, as you say, to last week's uh, story on quiet quitting. I think it also connects to the next story about about income inequality and, and sort of the data that you found there. But before we get to there, I mean, I do think we got to keep going deeper and pulling the thread on this broken contract between employers and employees, because mm -hmm. I, I find all this data, Libby, so fascinating. You have record unemployment, right? The unemployment rate is 3.5% in July. That is down to a five decade low, but you have employees fearful for their jobs. And then you have an incredible concern, stated concern, as we've seen among employers in, in very prestigious surveys like our Milk and Harris poll, saying that they are working diligently to really, you know, build up and, and improve benefits and improve DEI and ESG and other things that are, are sort of beneficial to, to employees and culture. And yet you see a lot of pessimism with employees about uh, those gains being made when you talk to them in these surveys. So, you know, it just feels like there's some, some big macro tensions here that are pulling apart. And I think they're getting accelerated by generational shifts. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. I think that's just such a strong point, John. It's these macro shifts and it, for, for me, I think also there's been the generational shift that's pushing it faster than corporations can kind of keep up. So to your point, I think corporations are actively investigating in a lot of good things, a lot of great benefits, a lot of really smart thinking. But the, you know, the way in which it hits the market, it's just going to hit slower than these generational values move to the market in some ways. So there's going to be some tension and pain until that gap is closed and hopefully those that gap comes like closes and those two parties come together and it's not just that employers kind of give up or or do something because you know generational values have shifted so much you know i think that the the plates will come together but there is opportunity for this this gap to kind of persist hmm. Well, speaking of, of gaps, there's a gap when it comes yeah. to our envy and love of uh, of people who make a lot of money. Yeah. So Americans overall, we've always known this, have had a love-hate relationship with people who make a lot of money. But lately, they're not impressed with billionaires. Um, while six in 10 Americans look up to billionaires, it doesn't mean that Americans are overwhelmingly pleased with their behaviors. Um, and I think this stems from 66% of Americans believe economic inequality is a serious national issue, right? Just thinking about that gap that right. we saw that was created even more during the pandemic. But that's especially true amongst Gen Z, Asian Americans, Black Americans, LBGTQ Americans, and millennials, 
all of that, those numbers, pretty much the high 70s. Um, and there's just a mounting disconnect between expectations and actions. So for example, 70% of Americans believe that billionaires have a responsibility to better um, the, the world, but they don't feel like they're doing it. Um, and nearly half of all Americans at 46% say billionaires make it harder to achieve their own American dream. But that's especially true for Gen Z Americans, millennial Americans, and LBGTQIA Americans. And then another 58% believe that billionaires actively are contributing to the inflation of their everyday goods and services. So really? you're making it hard to achieve my dream and you're increasing inflation. Like what is going on? So John, you know, why do you think Americans um, think that billionaires are getting in the way of their dreams? You know, what is, what's kind of happening here? Cause that's kind of a big statement. Yeah. Well, so I was, I love this survey that, that you guys conducted uh, out of your group this week. I think it's super interesting. And I was, I was sort of thinking about some of these questions around these issues this morning. I, um, I went on to salary.com. This is my favorite place to go, um, <laughs> find salaries. And do you know that, um, Larry Ellison, the chairman and, and CTO of Oracle, uh, made $11 billion last year and he had $1 in base pay. And mm. uh, I think that's a, a curious signal, right? Because that's a loophole, right? So when you, mm -hmm. when you have money, you're not paying uh, on ordinary income. And the other, there's so many loopholes. I think you're, you're absolutely right, whether that is um, you know, how the government encourages wealthy people to keep their money in the system so they're not paying taxes. I mean, there's just a, a range of different sort of issues that are, that are underneath this. But I think what's super interesting in this, Libby, is that you have Gen Z even more strongly uh, than millennials really feeling that there's, a, there's unfairness uh, in the system. And I, I thought it was interesting even this week with President Biden's announcement on student loan relief, that was met with some conflict uh, from different generations, right? To younger people saying, yeah, but it doesn't go far enough. And older people, boomers saying, well, what about my student loans that I paid off diligently <laughs> in the eighties, right? So is this another yeah. generational shift that's happening here? Yeah, by the way, I think that's such a ridiculous conversation because the way that <laughs> college prices with inflation have kept up, it's like there's a million stats and it's basically, you know, a hockey stick of, of where sure. college prices have gone up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, overall, I think there's a, there's a, Gen Z has a, a very strong moral understanding of what they believe is fair um and how you achieve fairness and equity and so i think they're they're just more skeptical of if people are billionaires and they're not you know doing a lot of good with their money then where is it going and how how does that harmfully affect everyone else you know overall um i think they're they're like taking those conversations to the masses though because overall when we think about feelings of fairness. We saw in our data that 65% of all Americans believe that billionaires don't pay their fair share of taxes. Like that's kind of a common thing, a common belief. Um, and then 58% of all Americans share resentment over billionaires' wealth accumulation during the, the pandemic. So I think what one thing that we noticed during the pandemic 
um, we did some social media monitoring and Americans overall, the conversations that were coming up, especially among young Americans, were this idea that the system is rigged and it's rigged against them. So again, we know that people really think that wealth inequality is a big deal, but if they think the system is rigged, it starts to create a lot of instability in our belief system overall um, and a lot of questioning around is this system that we have in place, is it working? And I think that's kind of some of the interesting conversation that you're especially seeing people under 30 um, have right now and Gen Z who's under 25 really having, um, which also gets us into, you know, kind of the debate on Elon Musk and media properties and who should be owning what, but we asked a question around, um, do you think billionaires purchasing media companies would be for the good? Um, and, you know, Gen Z is more likely to believe money should not equal media, whereas millennials are happy to see, you know, media go a little bit more private um, and, and to see the benefit of that. So when we asked about free speech on the Internet, you know, Gen, only 57 percent of Gen Z said that would be good for billionaires to, to do that. Um, it'd be beneficial versus 73 percent of millennials said, yeah, let's wow. go for that. Freedom of press. Only 59% of Gen Z, 72% of millennials, democracy, 52% um, of Gen Z, and 71% of millennials. So you just start to see that millennials are really gung-ho on having things being more privatized by billionaires because they've associated them with, you know, feelings of innovation and um smart thinking and their ability to make money in this country. Whereas I think Gen Z is just inherently a little bit more skeptical of what did you take to get there? And then also what are you doing with your money? Um, and then last here though, I thought was interesting is people are still buying into this American dream. Like they still want to become billionaires. So 60% of Americans want to become a billionaire one day. This is especially true with Gen Z and millennials, 72%. So it's not <laughs> like they don't want money. Um, and then I thought what was interesting is 44% of all Americans believe they have the tools to become a billionaire. Um, but that's especially true for crypto investors at 71% uh... and Gen Zers at 66%. So, you know, Again, we're, it's easy to criticize the billionaires, and, and I think these people imagine once they become billionaires, they're going to do more benefits for society. But John, like, you know, is this a battle of individual versus collective wills, you know? How do you think well, about that? Well wait, well, wait, this is, okay, number one, the, the, the high teens difference between Gen Z and millennials on free speech and the internet uh, with billionaires getting involved, freedom of press and democracy. That is like my favorite date of the week. That is just remarkable, the difference uh, in these two generations. And, you know, the other th the point there about um, crypto that you, that you brought in there also reminds me of sort of the Gen Z. And, and yes, we want to make money, but it needs to be done fairly, right? It needs to be done with a level playing field. And that seems to be a little bit of a different mindset from millennials that had the unicorn love and said, you know, let's go hustle and let's go make the money. So I think that's really interesting. And uh, you know what it does, Libby, it reminds me of that poll we did a couple of years ago with Axios. It was right before, um, it was absolutely actually right before the beginning of COVID in 2019. And we had questions like the government should provide universal health care. Um, the government should provide tuition-free college. 
and you had Gen Z uh, and millennials, but particularly Gen Z, were as high as six to 10, to some instances, 15 points higher. The one that was really, really remarkable was prefer living in a socialist country. Uh, 37% of the general population uh, agreed with that versus 49% uh, of Gen Z. And so I, I just thought what was so interesting in that, and I don't think they're saying they want to be in a socialist country, but they want social capitalism, right? They want Canadian style uh, government <laughs> and they want, you know, Norwegian style government. And I, I think that's just a really interesting generational shift you're seeing here. I, you know, tell me what you think there with the Gen Z. I, I really find that interesting. Yeah, I think the biggest thing you see with Gen Z is that they have a very clear understanding that this, the reason that we are in the predicaments that we are in or the ways in which they've kind of come to age, which is in tons of chaos and crisis, is because the systems in, are inherently broken around them. And so they have a very clear understanding of like system design. And so I think when they think about things, they don't think about it in, like, I think when millennials think about things, they think about it in big sky, what could be innovative, if if Elon Musk owned this or that, like, how would education change if he owned the entire education system? Like, they're, they get kind of excited about that versus Gen Z is like, but it still is based on a system. And what does that system look like? They, they were just raised kind of in a different cultural construct and mindset to say, well, who's designing the system? What are the biases in that system? And what are the things that we need to be thinking for? And honestly, I think that's kind of interesting that they, they come to the table with that perspective because I think they'll be leading us in some ways and asking really critical questions as we evolve to the next form of capitalism or wherever this, you know, wherever it goes. Um, because, you know, obviously wealth inequality can't remain a national crisis point um in in a country like ours for a long time so it's like that's got to be dealt with and it's probably got to be dealt with right. at a system design level hey before we leave this story on that point you sent me a great uh, we have this really great thing back and forth on in text and email you're always sending me awesome stuff you find and tell me that um, t talk to the the audience here about the the mischief popsicles that you sent me. I absolutely love that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Mischief is like a experimental agency, let's call them. Um, and it's in the name. They're mischievous and they do all these really fabulous kind of stunts and collective art. And one of the things that they did this summer around New York City was um, eat the rich popsicle. So you could eat a billionaire. They put like Jack Ma, they put Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos on a popsicle and it was $10. So it was a little outrageously priced, but they would go around New York city and you could actually participate in having a piece of the wealth. If that's how you want to uh, take it or actually eating the rich is an, is another way to examine what they're saying there. Fantastic. It's always an opportunity for a social statement through a popsicle. All yeah. right, well, let's finish up on, on a really important story that relates into, into data privacy and sort of what's happening, particularly with younger people uh, as they think about socializing. And um, here is, here's the state uh, the data. We, we did a poll this week with the New York Times as part of a larger story they did, really looking at sort of 10 years on 
um, what has happened with the steady uh, growth of Find My App, uh, you know, location apps. And, you know, clearly, Libby, these have been around for a long time. They've been a popular way to keep track of friends. But I thought it was interesting in, in, the, in the Times-Harris poll survey was this sense of the, the ease of sharing one's location really starts to open up a larger discussion around data tracking and how that is sort of uh, fitting in. And, and I think to start this off, this is really uh, something that's becoming incredibly important among younger people. Uh, we found in the Harris data that 77% of millennials and 69% of Gen Z report having activated location sharing features at least sometimes versus mm -hmm. all Americans at, at only 62%. Also inside these numbers, almost half of those who have used location sharing apps report wanting to share their location with other people as a reason why, and two in five at 37% say they feel safer when they have location sharing features activated. I want you to comment on that. I find that very interesting. Um, but it's also, Libby, it goes to something deeper, right? It goes to a social um, sort of statement around a friendship premium. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, when people talk about the friendship premium, there's this kind of great quote we found where this 24-year-old woman said, you know, everyone knew where everyone was at at all times. There's no reason for anyone to be like, quote unquote, where you're at, you could just check. You could check it and refresh it like Twitter. So what she's saying is that the way that her and her friends kind of get along and see each other is to just, you know, refresh the app and, oh, then there's Marco over there, there's Jenny over there, there's Patrice over here, et cetera. And I find this technology, and maybe it's just because I'm old, but I find it creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. And what's really interesting is how popular it is amongst people who date and couples as well. So this idea that you can track your your spouse, your partner, the person you're dating so that, you know, the benefit is you don't have to understand or predict when they're going to get home because you can just watch them on your GPS coming home. But um, in other ways, it seems like it could lead to a lot of slightly manipulative and abusive relationships, you know, where it's like someone's actually controlling where you stand and where you are. Um, and that kind of that surveillance mode doesn't sit right with me. And I, I don't think people really think about the implications of what's happening when you're always allowing yourself to be in a surveillance mode like that. Well, well let's step back and, and think about this because I think when you think about data privacy and we've seen this in our Harris global data for years, right? The, by and large, I'm generalizing, but, but the European Union citizens there have been incredibly concerned about, about data privacy and, and, and safety. And it's been less of an issue here in America, right? We sort of gleefully would uh, click our accept all cookies or, or sort of give up our, our information in return for, I guess, I don't know, simple convenience, right? Yeah. But, do you think that calculus is changing? Because, I mean, I think there were a couple things in the, in the news this week that were that were pretty harrowing. Yeah, I think I think privacy concerns are going to get really real. Um, and there were people are really going to start to rethink their behavior as they start to have kind of big implications. So the two news stories that we were chewing on this week were, you know, and th this wasn't a new news story, but it's just the thing that we think about when it comes to privacy is the the story about 
um, Facebook over turning over chat messages between a mother and daughter who are now charged with an illegal abortion. Mm. And this happened before even the Roe v. Wade um, decision was made. And so, but they turned over the messages um, after the decision was made, and now they're being retroactively prosecuted. It's kind of this crazy story. Mm. But, you know, all it takes is stories like that to to start to really think about what is the implication. Another insane story is this father who is using telemedicine health um, on his Android phone. And he has an infant, he has a problem in his groinal area, takes a picture, sends it to a doctor. Then Google system flags him as child pornography, locks him out of his phone. He's in the midst of buying a house. Anyways, he gets locked out of his phone for months. Um, and has to go through all this legal procedure to say he's not a criminal. The police investigate him. I mean, I think so. And Jeez. and it's a, it's like it's like the doctor never thought about asking, not asking right. him to send that picture. All this stuff. So I think again, our technology, like everything's kind of converging, and we don't yet understand the privacy implications to that. But both of these things, from a personal level, really made me pause and hesitate and say okay, well, where am I placing my photos, my data, whatever? And I think you're going to see more movement and thoughts about that. And more people might be shifting to Signal, which is, you know, not owned by Facebook compared to what app, WhatsApp and is more encrypted, or um, really thinking about where they uh, put their trust in, in photos and they might move more over into Apple, which has had a better track record of privacy so far to date. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's this new battleground where people have not thought about the implications, but the implications are kind of coming true. Um, and it also makes me think, John, I, we have a lot of Alexa and Google Home apps. And so I think about things like that, of course, the, the big argument about privacy most people used to make was that, you know, I don't do anything illegal. I'm not a criminal. Um, but then it's just all it happens to be is like until someone decides that your actions are and, and that had that have shifted over time or something like that. So I think that's where people are getting a little bit more concerned or are putting a little bit more um, scrutiny in their thinking about all of these these privacy concerns. Well, that's really, really interesting. And this doesn't even factor in obviously the the sort of incredible sort of movements that 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 ai have has made right in terms of photos and videos and how that's going to impact reputation and news and privacy and and what's real and what isn't i i will say um maybe to finish this off it was interesting i looked back into our axios harris poll 100 corporate reputation uh survey that we released in may and it was interesting this year um, that among all Americans, this is American data, when you looked at the tech rankings of, of most admired companies with corporate reputations, Libby, the, the companies that made things, the tech companies that, that were kind of makers, not takers, were high. Um, they were well-respected. So Samsung, Amazon, Sony, you know, IBM, Tesla, Apple, GE, 3M, LG, they were all in the top 25. But TikTok, Facebook, Meta, and Twitter were all in the bottom 90s. I mean, they were at the, mm. at the absolute rock bottom of, of our list. And I'm just curious what what you sort of think about that. You think that there is some sort of a 
of a calculus here that is changing. Uh, and it goes just beyond sort of simple big tech, right? It is there sort of different levels of trust and technology and what's the role of branding in all this? Yeah, I think it's a big one. I mean, I think there's been a huge shift in our expectations about what these, especially like social media companies are doing with our data, how it's improving or harming our health. There's been lots of narratives and, you know, deep discoveries around how some of the algorithms have been set up to harm our health. Um, and I think there's an expectation that they do more. And then the third thing is like, there's also an expectation around the value that consumers provide to these social media um, channels versus the reward and the monetary benefit that they're getting out of it. And what I mean specifically by that is like Instagram creators, TikTok creators, people mm. on, you know, Twitter spending all their time and not getting, you know, that attention monetary value return from it. You know, the creator programs are fairly small still. So, um, so I would say, yeah, data is a big one creator value exchange is another one and then how the algorithms are set up um i think that's going to be a huge awakening in probably the next five years is like what are how are the algorithms designed people really will want to know and there's got to be a le level of transparency around that to make sure that the information you're getting isn't being targeted to you in a way that's going to you know create personal um demise or disillusionment Hmm. Uh, absolutely. And I, I think the last thing maybe it's worth bearing in this conversation is we did ask Americans um, what types of, of industries and companies do they feel will keep their personal data safe. And Libby, it was interesting, three quarters, 72% said they trusted the healthcare industry the most, followed by local businesses at 68%. And then it goes all the way down the list. Um, through airlines, automotive, retail, telecom, uh, all the way down to only 32% of social media. So I think that's an interesting sort of implication as well. You know, does does it start to become a, a, a different sort of, you know, bifurcation of, of trust based on, on what you're doing with someone's data and, and, you know, whether or not there's foundational trust there to begin with? Mm-hmm, absolutely. All right, we've hit it, right? <laughs> I think so. Conversation. We'll let everybody yeah. uh, get into their day, into their weekend. Um, listen, thank you guys for joining us for America This Week from the Harris Poll. If you have any ideas on some polling that you'd love to um, send our way, just reach out to Libby Rodney on LinkedIn or John Gersman on LinkedIn. And as always, we hope to see you uh, soon. We have a newsletter also on, on uh, LinkedIn called America This Week. But uh, if that's all there is, Libby, I wish you a great weekend. You too, John. Have fun moving in and don't, you know, don't break your back with those mini fridges. <laughs> right. All right, guys. <laughs> awesome. Have a great week.